Well, good evening. It's my pleasure to be here this evening and to share God's word with you. Now, a few months ago, I was talking to Dave, and uh, Dave asked me if I was willing to speak this summer, and, he, and so we were talking about weekends, and he told me that I would be the principal speaker on this weekend. And so um, I didn't, wasn't quite sure where the principal speaker was, and so I decided to look that up. Now, I work in the financial industry now, and so I looked up the word principal, and I found out that the principal is what's left when all the interest is gone. <laughs> so I'm all the more delighted that you're here this evening to... Uh, and so I really feel that, uh, you know, this is going to be a good investment of your time and my time as we dig into God's word. Isaiah 55 tells us that it's the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It always accomplishes what I want it to. And it will prosper wherever I send it. So this evening, the title of the sermon, as you can see, is Standing on the Edge of God's Will. But before I get into uh, the sermon this evening, I'd like to just tell you about Jeremy. Now, Jeremy wore inch-thick Coke bottle glasses, and he had a perfect bowl haircut. And one day, after an uncharacteristic absence from school, Jeremy showed up in class with a big grin on his face and a Mickey Mouse hat on his head. And the teacher asked him, Jeremy, where'd you get the hat? And he said, I went to Disneyland yesterday. And the teacher said, really? Well, Well, tell us about that, Jeremy. Tell us about Disneyland. He said, well... I got to Disneyland, and the first thing I saw was the parking lot. And I mean, it's humongous. You can hold about a million cars in there. And so I got in this tram, and it drove me all around the parking lot, and eventually took me to where you buy tickets. And so I, I bought a ticket, and I also bought this cool hat. His teacher said, that's great, Jeremy. So, so what would you do next? He said, well, I got back in the tram, and I, I, drove, I drove around some more. It was really fun. I rode that tram all day. And the teacher said, all day? Well, did you go through the turnstiles and into, you know, Main Street USA, Adventureland, you know, all that kind of thing? And Jeremy looked a little confused, and he said, no, was I supposed to? And so Jeremy never experienced the fun at Disneyland because he never got beyond the ticket booth. He didn't realize there was something else there. And he settled for riding around the parking lot uh, in the tram. And so uh, have you ever experienced the joy and blessing of walking by faith in God's will or... Are you maybe still standing on the edge of God's will? Are you like Jeremy, you're riding the tram around and not knowing that there's more there? Um, are you still, you know, feeling like you're missing out on that, on what God has for you? So what is God's will for my life? It's quite possibly one of the most common questions we ask in Christianity. What is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? Now, I spent the last couple days at the Global Leadership Conference uh, over at the Wesleyan Church, and one of the things that that strikes me when I sit down and I listen to some of these great speakers and great leaders is uh, the things that they're accomplishing, the way that God's using individuals and churches to do these amazing things in the world. And you just think, wow, you know, uh, these people really have found God's will. There was this guy named Bob Goff, and he's a lawyer in BC, but more importantly, he's the CEO and founder of Restore International. And this is a nonprofit organization that was established to address the atrocities and the injustices committed against children. And uh, you look at this guy and you go, wow, you know, he's got this other career, but he's doing these amazing things for God. He's really found God's will. And um, I find when I, when I see that, I go, you know, God, where's your will for my life? You know, I, I feel like I'm standing on the edge of it. I haven't found it yet. Am I missing it? 
And, and as Dave alluded to, I recently made a career change. And uh, I'm 36, so it wasn't a full-blown midlife crisis, but it was definitely you know, a time of reflection in my life where I asked a lot of questions around you know, what God wanted me to do and, and what I was supposed to accomplish you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I reach you know, the end of my life and I look back, did I, did I find it or did I stay on the edge of it? And uh, what I found is that God is not necessarily concerned with you know, where specifically we're at. He, he doesn't want us necessarily to go A, B, C, D in terms of where we're, we're walking in our life. Um, he's really concerned about us knowing him more deeply and trusting him more completely. He's more concerned about our heart. And in terms of finding God's will, uh, what I found is that God's will is not something that we find. It, w- it was never really lost. Um, it's always been there. And it's something that's clearly articulated in Scripture, uh, such as Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And in Micah 6, 8, um, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God has given us his will already. It's, it's not lost. Um, our job is to align our lives with God's will. We need to set ourselves in a course moving towards God's will by faith and surrender our lives to him. And, that, and that's how we move off the edge of God's will. That's how we get off the tram and see his blessings. Uh, the guy named Steve Childers said, God loves to pour out his spirit with power on those who dare to align radically their purposes with his. And that's what I see when I look, like, look at people like this Bob Goff who is doing these amazing things in the third world for children. So in the scripture we're going to explore today, we're going to read about a group of people who were a lot like Jeremy. Uh, But they rolled the edge of something even better, and they never entered it. In their case, it was a place even better than Disneyland. It was called Canaan. It was the promised land. It was a land that was said to be flowing with milk and honey. It had been promised to their ancestors for hundreds of years, and uh, God gave it to them. He told them to take it. it. It was theirs and they missed it. They managed to stand on the edge of God's will. But before we read the scripture, I'd just like to take a few minutes just to review the history of the Israelite people from this point and and this promise that God gave them about the land of Canaan, this promised land. So in Genesis 17, God told Abraham, I will give you and them the land in which you are now a foreigner. I will give the whole land of Canaan to your family forever and I will be their God. And then to Isaac, Abraham's son, he said, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And continuing on to the grandson, Jacob. Jacob had a dream, and you you, you remember this. Uh, He had a dream which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with a top reaching up to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. And so what happens from here is Jacob's son Joseph um, goes to Egypt as a slave. And eventually, um, if you know Joseph's story, he rises up to second in command in Egypt because there's a famine there. And then Jacob and the rest of the family come down to Egypt. Excuse me. 
and they settle there because, you know, there's no food where they're at. And so um, what happens after that, though, is, you know, time goes by, and the leadership in Egypt changes, and Jacob dies, and Joseph dies, and all of a sudden the Israelites aren't, you know, our allies. They're this group of people that we're worried about, and so the Egyptians enslave them, and that goes on for about 400 years. And then along comes Moses, and we know that God performed many miracles with Moses, including parting the Red Sea to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. And the Bible said there was an estimated 1.5 million people who came out of Egypt with Moses, and he delivered them from slavery and led them on the journey across the desert to the Promised Land. And so this is where the scripture is going to pick up, and we're going to read through the scripture here together right now. Um, the Israelites have just, you know, they've just left uh, Egypt a few months earlier, and they're on the edge of the promised land. This land has been promised for, for centuries to their ancestors. So we're going to read along with me here in Numbers 13. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan that I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are weak or strong, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected or open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. That happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. Now, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses and Aaron in the community of Israel, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. And this was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. And it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey, and here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as he stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes in there, who lived there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us into this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints against me? Yes, I've heard the complaints the Israelites are making against me. 
Now tell them this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness. Because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years old or older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to you. The only exceptions will be Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joseph, son of Nun. <clears throat> wow. This story's a, a tragedy. Hundreds of thousands of people spent 40 years in the desert, on the edge, on the very cusp of the blessing that God had in store for them. And what can we learn from this story? How do we stay off the edge of God's will and, and walk in God's will? Well, this evening we're going to dig into the passage that I just read, and, and I'm actually going to pick out the Israelites, the actions that the Israelites did that kept them on the edge. Um, and so, using examples from our passage, I'm going to actually outline how to stay on the edge of God's will. And this might sound a little backwards, uh, but let's be clear, I'm not encouraging you to stand on the edge of God's will, quite the opposite. I'm just explaining how it happens. So, with my tongue firmly implanted in my cheek, here are three ways to stand on the edge of God's will. First of all, we need to take our eyes off of God. It's evident when we read through this scripture that the ten spies and the rest of the Israelites focused on everything but God. They talked about the land, they talked about the powerful enemy, they talked about the fortified towns, they talked about their own inadequacy and the danger to themselves. And then in chapter 14, they really just broke into complaining for a few verses. Uh, but never did they focus on God. They didn't talk about what he did in the past or the promises to their forefathers or about the miracles you know, he just parted the Red Sea a few weeks ago and that seemed to have slipped their mind. They were focused on themselves and they totally forgot about God. So in order to stay on the edge of God's will, we'll have to do the same. We'll have to take our eyes off of God or we'll be in danger of walking in his will. So practically speaking, how do we do this? Well, it's easy. Do nothing. Unplug yourself from the power source. If you're meeting up with other believers in a small group, you know, maybe find something else to do that night. If your personal devotions are going really well um, and you're really getting into God's word and he's speaking to you, just let that slide. Um, if you have a consistent prayer life, um, take a break from that for sure. And if you're attending church and serving, uh, get busy with something else. Find something else to do on your Saturday evening or your Sunday morning or whenever that is. So really the good news is, if you're trying to take your eyes off of God's will, off of God, uh, you're going to have a bit more free time in your hands. So this is the first step in ensuring that you stay on the edge of God's will. And it really seems to cut off a lot of the communication lines that God uses to reach you. So, so first of all, stay on, to stay on the edge of God's will, take your eyes off of God. Uh, secondly, make sure you're comfortable. So before I go any further, I just want to define comfort here for our purposes today. Comfort can be defined as a state of physical ease and freedom from pain or restriction. So again, this is good news if we're trying to stay on the edge of God's will. Uh, we get to avoid, you know, pain and uh, we have a life of ease. So we get free time and all that too. 
And in this passage, the 10 spies determined that heading into the promised land was going to be challenging. Uh, there was going to be battles to fight and enemies to defeat. And after sharing their concerns with the rest of the Israelites, uh, the challenges looked so great, in fact, that everybody wanted to head back to Egypt. Um, in the interest of their own comfort, both the 10 spies and the rest of the Israelites said no to entering the promised land. But you say, wait a minute, Dean, what you're saying isn't entirely true. The 10 spies were actually initially obedient. They actually moved off the edge there for a minute, didn't they, when they went in to spy out the land? So, I mean, I'll, I'll grant that, but what I'd like to suggest is that spying out the, the promised land was actually kind of a relatively easy job. Uh, maybe even a bit of a choice job. Let's think about this. What guy doesn't like sneaking around pretending to be a secret agent? <laughs> That's essentially what they're instructed to do, right? Uh, sure, they're obeying God, but they're really playing spy games while they left their wife and kids back in the desert, and they got a bit of a break from that. And I think a lot of us can relate to the, sp the spies. We're really good at blending in with the world around us, and that's what they had to do when they were in there checking out the land. Um, we're really good at blending in with the people around us. We're really good at pretending to be one of them, just like the spies. I mean, I know I am. Um, Always remember, though, if you want to stay on the edge of God's will, you have to stay blended into your surroundings. You can't just do it for a short period of time. You have to stay blended in. You don't want to show yourself for who you really are, one of God's followers. That could get a little uncomfortable. And, and I mean, like I said, comfort is really the goal here. A good rule of thumb is if you're facing challenges, opposition, or what if, if what you're doing for God starts to interfere with your comfort level, it's time to stop doing what you're doing. So to this point, in order to stand on the edge of God's will, we have to do two things. Take our eyes off of God, make sure we're comfortable. And the final piece of advice we can glean from this passage and how to stay on the edge of God's will, make sure everyone knows when you're not comfortable, otherwise known as complaining or grumbling. Now you might think that the first two steps would be enough to keep yourself stolidly on that edge and you'd probably be right. So this one here is a little bit of insurance. Um, and the third step really is good at keeping you there. And let me explain why. First of all, it ensures that you're not the only one standing on the edge of God's will. Complaining influences others to come down to your level. I mean, who wants someone else walking in God's will and making you feel all guilty but where you're at, right? So not me. Um, so in verse 32, we read that the 10 spies spread a bad report among the Israelites. And it obviously worked, because in chapter 14, we read, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? Now that's efficient influence if I ever saw it. So it says by nightfall, all of the Israelites were complaining. So we had 10 guys, and you have to remember there's 1.5 million Israelites, and by evening, all of them were singing the same song, okay? And that, that's another piece of good news if you're trying to stay on the edge. It's easy to keep other people there with you. It's easy to influence because the negative has always been a little more fun to share. Let's face it, the truth can be a little boring sometimes. Um, add a little controversy, a little negativity, a little exaggeration, 
and most people will be at least willing to listen. As they say, the grass is always greenest next to the outhouse. So besides swelling the ranks on the edge, complaining serves to strain the relationship between yourselves and God. In verse 14, verse 27, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? So God is obviously getting a little upset here with his people. And so, you know, in addition to influencing others, when you're grumbling and complaining, it's going to strain the relationship with God, and I mean, that can only help to keep you on the edge of his will, don't you think? So that's really it to summarize how to stand on the edge of God's will. Take your eyes off of God, make sure you're comfortable, and make sure everyone knows when you're not comfortable. Pretty simple. Now let's just switch gears for a second. And I'm assuming that if you're here tonight, standing on the edge of God's will is not what you're going for. My hope would be that if any of us, myself included, discovered that our current behavior matched up with anything that I've been talking about for the last few minutes, um, it would be raising some alarm bells that maybe we need to make some changes, uh, that maybe we're not on track to walking in God's will. And if one of the behaviors I described is something you're doing, um, you might want to look at that because quite possibly it's helping to keep you on the edge of God's will. As we're reading through the story um, in the passage earlier about the Israelites, um, it's painfully obvious to anybody reading it that they should have been doing something different. Um, how God's people could have taken steps to enter the promised land and not stayed on the edge for all those years. Um, so in the remaining minutes, I'm just going to briefly summarize uh, the opposite here right now. I'm going to briefly summarize how to walk by faith towards God's will. And really, these three points are the exact opposite of the ones I've described, and these are the ones you should be following. If you're unclear on that, these are the ones to follow. The other ones are what you shouldn't be doing. So, how to walk by faith in God's will. First of all, choose to keep your eyes on God. Choose. You'll notice that this one is a choice. It doesn't happen automatically. Now, taking your eyes off of God does. Keeping your eyes on God is intentional. It's a daily, sometimes even moment-by-moment -moment choice in our lives. Keep your eyes on who he is, keep your eyes on what he's done already, and keep your eyes on what he's promised to do. And practically, you guys know this, get into God's word, get on your knees and pray, um, serve in your church, you know, and that's how we keep our eyes on God, keep your focus on him. It's a choice. And I could say more about this point, but scripture really says it best in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Choose to keep your eyes on God. So secondly, if you want to walk by faith in God's will, we have to choose to persevere despite trials. Now the first thing I want to say about trials is that they're not punishment. Uh, they're actually part of walking in God's will. And I'm going to back this up with some scripture. Um, Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as, his, as the father, the son he delights. So God disciplines those he loves and those trials are part of being one of God's children. Um, the second point I'd like, thing I'd like to say about trials is that's how we grow in our faith. Unfortunately, 
God's plan for us to grow up in our faith is to go through some trials. Uh, when things are going well, we tend to stay at the same grade level in our spiritual walk. Um, it's only in the trials and as we're willing to go through those trials and uh, let God you know, grow us there that we, that we grow up in our faith. And again, I'm going to give you a piece of scripture here to back this up. James 1-2. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may, me, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, do you think that God needed the Israelites to chase his enemies out of the promised land? Anybody? Of course not. God created the universe you know, with his mind. He could have wiped those people out with a thought. Then why? The reason is that it was testing time for the Israelites. It was grow-up time. God had already given them the land. All they had to do was start showing some faith. The people of Israel were being tested by God, and the unfortunate thing is that they failed. They didn't want to go through the trial. They didn't want to have it interfering with their comfort level. They lacked the faith in God's provision. And now, their decision would prove disastrous. Uh, Not only did they miss out on the blessing of the promised land, not only did they have to suffer in the wilderness for 40 years and eventually die, but I think the saddest thing about them not being willing to go through that trial is that their spiritual growth was stunted. They never matured in their faith beyond that. They were basically stuck at grade two in spiritual maturity school. There's no way to follow Jesus without him interfering in your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus will always cost you something. And we need to choose to persevere despite trials if we're going to walk in faith towards God's will. So, so far, in order to walk in faith towards God's will, we need to choose to keep our eyes on God and we need to choose to persevere despite trials. And so finally this evening... The third thing we need to do to walk in faith towards God's will is choose joy. Choose joy. Instead of complaining, choose joy. Now, first of all, let's do a little definition on joy. Joy isn't happiness. Happiness is more of a surface emotion. It's fleeting. It's way too dependent on our circumstances. And we don't really have control over choosing happiness. But joy's different. We can choose joy. Now, Rick Warren defines joy as the settled assurance that God is in control of the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I'm going to use James 1 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, and sisters when you face trials of many kinds. Complaining is really an expression of unbelief towards the sovereignty of God in our lives. A.W. Tozer said, among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul and destroy the testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. Joy, on the other hand, is an expression of faith and confidence in God. And what he said, that all things work together for good 
for them that love God, to them who are called according to his purposes. Read that in Romans. So a little anonymous poem here to end this point. When you thank God for every blessing sent, what time will then remain for murmurs and lament? So finally, uh, choose joy. So just to wrap up the three points on how to walk in faith towards God's will, choose to keep your eyes on God, choose to persevere despite trials, and choose joy. Now, when I was wrapping up the sermon, I was kind of looking for, you know, I was, I was looking for this illustration or story that everybody's just going to go, wow, that's amazing, and, and uh, you know, just tie everything together. And what was funny is that I was going, as I was going through the sermon, God kind of was laying on my heart a uh, multi-site. And I thought, that's the perfect illustration to wrap this all up. And so I'm just going to speak about that for a second here as we end. Um, it was something that God laid in my heart, as I said, and I saw a lot of parallels between the Israelites and multi-site at the Journey Church. Multi-site was a near-unanimous decision from our membership a few years ago, similar to probably the initial consensus, you know, that the Israelites had when, uh, when Moses said, we're going to the Promised Land. Um, however, as we found as we moved into multi-site, there's challenges. You know, there's a few trials that we had to go through. Uh, some of our friends, we don't see them all the time because they're at a different campus. Our volunteers are sometimes spread thin. And we don't always have a live speaker. Does this mean multi-site was the wrong decision? Quite the opposite. I believe that the trials are evidence that God is with us. You know, this is in addition to the abundant evidence that he's giving us, you know, that we once had a dying church and now we have a very alive church. And lives are being changed and there's baptisms happening. Um, I won't dwell on this point any longer other than to say, let's continue to to, to put God's work and God's will ahead of our own comfort when it comes to multi-site. Let's choose joy at the work he's done, the work he's doing, and the work he's going to do as we faithfully continue to walk in his will. I believe multi-site is an example of walking in faith towards God's will, and I think the Journey Church has done a good job of that, so um, it's awesome. So in conclusion this evening, I just want to reiterate that God's will for us is clearly set out in Scripture. Um, it's not a matter of us finding it. It's a matter of us willing, being willing to align our lives with it. When we do that, the sky is the limit in terms of what God can accomplish in our lives. Um, I believe most of us can relate to Jeremy, the guy that rode the tram around Disneyland, at least a little bit. You know, there's definitely times in our lives where we've missed opportunities to be in God's will because we took our eyes off God. You know, we were looking out for our own comfort or we're just too busy complaining. Um, and if we're suspicious that we may be wandering in the desert in any aspect of our lives, uh, choose to change that. God is calling each one of us to leave the desert of our circumstances and follow him despite the obstacles, to experience his promises, his plans, and his blessings. And, you know, like the Israelites, there's always going to be opportunities to turn back, and unfortunately there'll always be somebody willing to help you get back there, either through complaining or, or whatnot. Um, but we need to daily choose to move forward with God in faith despite the trials and the discomfort. And the good news is that God is still there, waiting for us to turn our eyes to him, to choose to persevere, to choose to choose joy. There will be obstacles and sacrifice, but living in God's will is where we will experience joy. Let's get off the edge of his God's will and start walking towards him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this evening, Lord, that you are always there and that you never change. And God, despite the ways that we mess up, 
your will is still being accomplished, Lord. And really, Lord, you just want to have our heart. You want us to, to know you more deeply and, and trust you more completely. So God, that's my prayer tonight for us individually. That's my prayer for us as a church, Lord. And we ask that you go with us this week and help us to walk in faith towards your will. In Jesus' name, amen.